0: Welcome to Cal St. G. Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to CalvaryStGeorge's.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G. Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. So the book of Esther gives us a story of how a remarkable escape from annihilation leads Jews to celebrate a new festival, the festival of Purim. This festival was celebrated this week by our Jewish friends right across the block. It's always to be celebrated on the 14th of Adar. That's the Jewish day and month, that's Jewish calendar. They've been celebrating this festival for over 2,000 years. And as we'll see in this book, they're to celebrate it until they believe the Messiah comes. And for us, we believe the Messiah has come. So, again, a remarkable escape from annihilation leads to this celebration of a new festival that's not found in the Torah. The story that's contained in the Book of Esther is set in Susa, which is in present-day Iran. And this was one of several capitals among the Persian emperors who rotated their palace residences. Now... A major theme of the book is role reversal, or the reversal of destiny through a sudden and unexpected turn of events. What literary critics, for all you literary critics here, they call it peripety. Again, role reversal, reversal of destiny. And we see this constantly throughout the book. And I'm not going to point it out every time it happens, when we get to the 100-foot view, the really detailed view of the book. But in a nutshell, we see over and over again that the Jews' enemies move from domination to downfall, while the Jews in the story go from certain doom to victory. Now, interestingly enough, the book of Esther is one of two books in the Hebrew Bible that never explicitly mention God. The other book is the Song of Solomon. And the book of Esther is a fairly secular story. In fact, a lot of scholars think that the Feast of Purim was kind of like, for us, Christmas. It originally maybe wasn't even a Jewish religious feast, religious feast, that is, and was made into a religious feast. We talk about Christians baptizing either certain parts of culture or festivals like Christmas. Well, here, it might just be that the Jews took something that was secular and made it religious. And we'll we'll get into that a little bit more in a bit. But that said, while the text never explicitly mentions God, the coincidences, and as I mentioned, the constant reversals that drive the plot also suggests that there's a hidden hand of providence at work throughout its pages. So here's the 1,000-foot view. And in this, we'll mention that the book has three main sections that we are, because Esther is such a small book, we're really going to get into the story today. The first section is the story of Esther itself, or the background for the origin of the festival of Purim. And that's in chapters 1 through chapter 9, and ends around verse 20 of chapter 9. The second section, which is a really small section, is the authoritative institution of Purim for Jews of all subsequent generations. So, in that first section, we have the story itself. The second section, we see in the form of letters by Esther and Mordecai that this festival, which we're kind of focusing on different elements of the story that maybe the first celebrators of the festival did, but now this is going to be authoritative. Authoritative for Jews everywhere and for all time. And that's just chapter 9, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 32. And the third and final section is an epilogue, which talks about Mordecai's relationship with the king after the story of deliverance has taken place. So, the long opening section recounts the deliverance of Jews that was initiated by Mordecai and accomplished by Esther. And the second uh, short section ends the story with their letters to establish this new festival as an annual Jewish festival. Festivals like we saw in the Torah for Jews of every generation. Now the book's primary purpose is really to show the historical grounds for the celebration of this feast. But not just the historical grounds for it, but how it's to be celebrated. And I keep really pounding that, because it seems that the festival actually may have been celebrated in one way, way back in the day, and it was the focus of the celebration was changed with the book of Esther, that was made scripture. Uh, So that's, we'll get into that in a second. So, let's go straight into the 100-foot view, the story, the book itself. Now, in the opening verses of the first chapter, the Persian king Ahasuerus holds a lavish 180-day banquet for his court, and dignitaries. And if that wasn't enough, he then puts on a seven-day banquet for all the inhabitants of the city of Susa. The author of this book is presenting to us the great wealth, the pomp, the circumstance, and the diversity of the Persian Empire. Now, on the second day of that second banquet, the seven-day banquet, The king, or no, not the second day, sorry, the last day of the second banquet, the king orders his queen, Queen Vashti, to display her her beauty before all of these guests by coming before them wearing her crown and her royal robes. The problem here, though, is that Vashti refuses to be put on display like this. And feminist biblical scholars have rightly lauded her refusal to be put on display, to essentially serve as a royal sex object. So feminist biblical scholars have really picked up on this and said that her integrity and independence are a model to women everywhere, and we agree. That said, as a result of her defiance, In male-dominated ancient Persian culture, the king furiously removes her from her position as as an example to other women who might be emboldened to, in his words, disobey their husbands. Also, a decree follows that every man should bear rule in his own house. Sorry, ladies, but this heroic stand of the ancient world met with a serious consequence, a serious opposition. But wow, in that time, what a, what a refusal. So, Queen Ashti is removed from her position of power, and this sets the stage for our story, where the king makes arrangements for a new queen. And this, again, it's how we're introduced to the second heroine of the book. Among the selection of women presented to the king is a Jewish orphan girl named Esther who was raised by her cousin Mordecai. Esther finds favor in the king's eyes. (laughs) I wonder how she finds favor. That's pretty much all it says. But she is crowned his new queen. Only Mordecai and Esther decide that it's best that they do not reveal her Jewish identity. So she comes into the Persian court. She essentially becomes made a queen, but the king Ahasuerus does not know that she is a Jew. Shortly after her rise to power, her cousin, Mordecai, he uncovers a plot by two courtiers who are at the walls around the city, and they are planning on assassinating King Ahasuerus. Mordecai, he notifies the authorities, and the conspirators are apprehended and hanged, and Mordecai's service is recorded in the king's journals. Now this takes us all the way to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is important because it's here that we are introduced to the story's antagonist. King Ahasuerus appoints Haman the Agagite as his viceroy. And almost immediately in the story, Mordecai, who again, he's at the palace gates where he was before, he falls into Haman's disfavor and the way he does this is that Haman, as the new viceroy, he is paraded through the city, and Mordecai decides that he is not going to bow down to him. Now, the text is kind of ambiguous whether Mordecai is not bow down to Haman because Haman's just a bad guy, but it also makes clear that he doesn't bow to Haman because he is Jewish, and you just don't do that as a good Jew. And Haman later discovers that Mordecai does not bow down to him because of his Jewishness, and in revenge plots not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews in the empire. So this, for many Jews, is really kind of one of the origin stories of anti-Semitism throughout the ages. Now, Haman obtains King Ahasuerus' permission to execute his plan by telling the king that there is a certain people among all the peoples of the province who do not keep the king's laws. And without exactly spelling out who these people are, he suggests to the kings that it is not appropriate for them to even be tolerated. The king is very suggestible at this point. He's thinking, oh, these people aren't obeying? Sure, go along with your plan. And it's kind of presented as the the king is being somewhat gullible in all of this, or just being kind of unfocused, and just he goes along. Haman has his way. So, the king agrees that all Jews should be struck down, and a royal decree is issued throughout the kingdom to slay all Jews on the 13th of the month of Adar. Again, the day every year that Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim to this day. And the text goes on to show that the way they they came upon this date was they rolled a die. Or they rolled, um, it was essentially by luck. And that's essentially what Purim means. So all Jews are going to be assassinated, killed, slaughtered on the 13th of the month of Hadar. When Mordecai discovers this plan, he goes into mourning, and he implores Esther to intercede with the king. And we would think, of course, Esther would do this, but understandably so, Esther is afraid to present herself to the king, and she's afraid to present herself to the king because queens don't. Just enter the king's chambers. The king calls the queen in. The king calls everyone in. And if you come in unbidden and unannounced, you, by law, are to be killed. It's an offense punishable by death. So she hesitates at first, but then tells Mordecai to have all the Jews... Of the city, fast for her for three days, and she will fast those three days as well, and then she will move forward. And this is where, despite the fact that God isn't mentioned throughout the book, and despite the fact that scholars tend to view this story originally as kind of a secular Jewish story, secular, you know, not quite in our modern terms, but not explicitly religious, but at this time, right, she's calling for the Jews to. To fast, which is kind of a religious thing. And two, this is when Mordecai tells her essentially that if you do not deliver us, God will provide, like he doesn't say God, but another will be provided. There's that confidence that despite the fact that there may be Jews who are killed as a result of this decree, another will rise up. And this is when she has, essentially says those heroic words, if I perish, I perish, so be it, I will do it. So on the third day of the fast, she goes to the king, and instead of having her ordered killed, he stretches out his scepter to indicate that she is not to be punished. She then invites him and his viceroy Haman to a feast, And at this feast, the king Ahasuerus is essentially so in love with the queen that he does what we see other biblical kings or kings in the Bible do. He says that he will give her anything that she desires, up to half of the kingdom. And what she says is that essentially, come to one more feast. I will give you my request Tomorrow. And she knows in her mind that she's going to make her request clear then. Now, shortly after the first feast, Haman is once again offended by Mordecai because Mordecai has a lack of reverence for him. He doesn't respect him. He doesn't bow down. At this point, Mordecai knows about Haman's decree. And Haman is just this really insecure guy who just needs To be respected and needs his power to be acknowledged. And at his wife and his courtier's suggestion, he decides to have a gallows built on his residence, and this gallows is prepared for Mordecai. That night, so the story is just bang, 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 like this. That night, the king has a bout of insomnia, and being unable to sleep, he orders the court's records to be read to him. I don't know about what you do when you have insomnia, but evidently this king just wants the records read. He is reminded, as these records are read, that Mordecai had interceded on his behalf in that previous plot in his life and was never given any recognition. It was recorded, but there was no thanks. There was no nothing. As this is being read to him, as he's thinking these thoughts... Just at that point, Haman comes to him, and he wants to ask permission to hang Mordecai on his land. But before he can make this request, the king asks, what should be done for a man that the king wishes to honor? The king doesn't tell him who, but Haman assumes, it's probably me. (laughs) So Haman suggests that the man be dressed in the king's royal robes and led around on the king's royal horse while a herald calls, see how the king honors a man he wishes to reward. And to his surprise and horror, the king tells Haman that the man he wishes to honor is in fact Mordecai. So yet again, another reversal. You see that theme of reversal that I talked about. After humiliatingly heralding Mordecai around the city, Haman joys Ahasuerus to attend that second banquet that Esther put on. The king once again reiterates his promise to her to grant her anything she desires, up to half of his kingdom. And it's at this point, for the very first time, Esther reveals to the king that she is Jewish. That Haman has ordered this decree to slaughter all her people, including her. And the text presents it as the king finally coming to his senses, oh yeah, I did that. And he is furious. This is the queen whom he loves. And he storms out of the room. And Haman, sensing that bad things lay in store for him, he falls on his knees and he begs Esther for his life. And as he's doing this, as he's on top of her, the king comes back in the room and thinks that Haman is in fact violating her, that he is abusing her. So his furor is even worse now. And the king orders that Haman be hanged on the very gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Another reversal. Unable to annul his previous royal decree, the king instead adds to it, and he permits Jews throughout the empire to destroy all those who would go to kill them, to oppress them. So on the 13th of Adar, Haman's 10 sons and 500 other men are killed at Shushan. And upon hearing of this victory, Esther requests this act of resistance to repeat the next day. The king allows it. 300 more men are killed. And this is where we're going to get to in a minute. This is where the story this may be one of the secular parts of the story that's kind of undone by that second section that we'll mention in a second. But the purge does not end there. As the story goes on, uh, it, it goes on to say that the purge becomes is everywhere. That people are being killed by the thousands, and not just the thousands, but by the tens of thousands. And on one level, this is really kind of meant to be seen as, as kind of a, a justice being done. They were going to be killed, but then it kind of gets a little bit out of hand. And many, even Jewish scholars say that the ending gets a little offensive toward the end. I think this is a little over the top. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come to it in a second. So again, that second section, Esther and Mordecai send letters throughout the provinces instituting an annual commemoration of the Jewish people's redemption from their enemies in this holiday called Purim, or Purim, which is still celebrated to this day. And then a really quick appendix is essentially about how Mordecai, because of all he had done, he is essentially kind of a Persian king's right-hand man now, and the Jews, again, have gone from certain doom to, essentially, victory and power. So that's really the story, and that's, that's the book. So, In conclusion, what's up with the letters to the end of this book? What is their canonical effects? What do we do with that violence at the end of the story? And I think what's interesting is where some of the violence in the stories like Joshua can be like Christians throughout history have really kind of dealt with that in different ways. And that's been really tough. But in this book, What's interesting is in those letters it's as if an editor has given us a view on how to understand this book. So the book of Esther narrates the life of a Jewish maiden who is orphaned, reared by her uncle, becomes the queen of Persia, saves the Jews living in the empire from the scheming of Haman. Let's not forget that. The Jews were going to be exterminated. Now, most biblical scholars believe that the letters that we see written by Esther and Mordecai to the Jews throughout the the empire is a later addition to the original story. So there was the story, but when the book became scripture which contains the story, there was this addition put onto it. Now, what is the relationship between the story and the addition, or the story and these letters for the final form of the book? Well, again, as I mentioned, that second section begins in chapter 9, verse 20 and following. An editor to the story is providing an authoritative institutionalizing of the festival from now on for every future generation of the Jewish people. And again, we see this in the form of two letters from the protagonists. But what's really interesting about these stories is that they direct the interpretation of the story that you just read or just heard read aloud. They direct the interpretation of it. For while it is likely that, in that secular sense, original celebrations of the deliverance of the Jewish people from their enemies included an element of vengeance, of revenge. Upon their enemies. These letters make clear that revenge is not the focus of the festival. Revenge is not what we're to remember when we celebrate the Feast of Purim. Now, according to this edition, the festival is binding upon every subsequent generation. The text says it's never to fall into disuse. It's to be celebrated in the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar every year and is to commemorate the turning from sorrow into gladness. The Feast of Purim, talk to our Jewish brothers and sisters across the street, is not to be understood as a victory celebration, but a rejoicing over relief from persecution. It is a celebration of rest, And as a result, gifts are to be given to the poor. We have received this great gift of deliverance, and so we give gifts to the poor. There is no element in those letters that we are to stamp out those who are against us. So all this is to say that the book retains some of those what you might call offensive elements of the original story, but the canonical effect of these final verses defines what the effect of the story is to be on successive generations. This is not a book about victory or the slaughter of enemies, even though there were elements of that in the original story. But as the original story has been made into Scripture, it's been transformed from a story about victory into one focusing only upon the relief from persecution, on rest from enemies. It's a celebration of deliverance that leads not to revenge, but again to the giving of gifts. Does that make sense? I'll give you time for questions in a minute. I just want to talk about two other things and, and we're done. So, one of the things in this book that we see, I and mean, it's really interesting for us who followed these books in order, is that all of these events take place outside of Palestine, take place outside of Jerusalem, take place away from the temple. This book makes clear that the hidden God protects not only his people in Palestine, not only in Jerusalem, but Jews of the diaspora, Jews who remain behind, the people of God everywhere. And one final thing before we go into questions. uh, Jews throughout history have pointed to this book as their story. And that's not just in response to the events of the 20th century. It's not in response to the Holocaust. Jews have been saying this is their story for millennia. That they have encountered an intense anti-Semitism throughout their existence. And I think that this is a testament... To you and me, who experience our own trials and tribulations, persecutions, horrors, you name it. That despite even the events of last century, despite the Holocaust, where six million Jews are killed, Jews still read this story every year. Despite everything, God is protecting his people, despite everything, God is trustworthy. For when you read this book, and I like, I almost like lost it reading it, this book is almost the reverse of the events of the Holocaust. The order of the extermination of the Jewish people. And they're saved in the book of Esther. And Jews have had to reckon, what does it mean that God allowed so many of us to perish with the Holocaust. Again, that wrestling with God that I've been talking about throughout our look at the Bible. A wrestling with him that he is delighted in. And at the end of the day, along with the psalmist, they and we can say, despite everything, we trust you. Despite everything, we believe that you are for us. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live. Or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.